Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week, where we're going to be delving into the topic of ethanol. Is it really good for this country or not? Should it be going in our cars or should it be going to feed the country? And getting to the bottom of these issues, I've got three experts on the panel today. Jim Frusty is the manager of fuels affairs at the Chrysler Group. Bruce Dale is a professor of chemical engineering at Michigan State University. And Candace Wheeler is a technical fellow for research and development at General Motors. Thanks for all for joining me here today. And Candace, I'll throw it out to you. Is There's so much controversy about ethanol right now. Corn prices are going through the roof. People think that we're starving the nation of a necessary food uh, uh, source. Uh, the, the ranchers are up in arms over what they're paying for, for corn. Is this good for us or not? I think it is. I think there's a lot of misconception out there. And certainly the drought has been severe in the United States this year, and we're going to see a reduced corn crop because of it. Um, but even the latest estimates show that, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, be at about 11 billion um, bushels uh, this year, down from 14.8 last year. So um, that is a significant drop. But I think that, you know, the, eth it, the market has been working to sort of mitigate that. In fact, ethanol uh, companies have been cutting back on, on the amount of ethanol that we've been producing as well. And when you look at it globally, it's, it's a global issue. Last year, Brazil had a very bad year on sugar, and we exported a lot of corn ethanol down there. This year, they have a better harvest, and we may be ex importing some of theirs here. But, you know, uh, uh, Argentina is set to have a very good crop this year, so is China, so is Brazil. So when you look at it globally, uh, the impact of the U.S. drought is going to be about 2% on, on total global grain. So we will see a reduction, but it's not as significant as people might think when, when we just hear the news that comes on. Bruce, if the United States were to drop this mandate that says thou shalt produce ethanol and mix it with gasoline, wouldn't our, our gasoline prices go down because ethanol is so expensive right now? Wouldn't our food prices go down as well? No. I mean, the fundamental principle of economics is when you have additional stuff in the market, more, more supply, the, the, the price goes down. And I just filled up at Fort Dan a gallon. And so having ethanol in the market uh, reduces fuel prices below what they'd otherwise be. But how does it do that? Because we keep hearing now that with corn prices up, ethanol yeah. prices are up. So you'd think that's driving up the price of gasoline, not down. No, I, the, these plants are profitable to operate at a certain certain ethanol price, and ones that people that don't have the, the, the margins to operate don't. They drop out of the market, and the low-cost producers stay in. And so, uh, no, no, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> so has the price of ethanol been going up, though? Uh, it's about the same. It's, 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 a little, it's, it's somewhat higher, but it, ethanol now tracks uh, oil prices. So it's, it's part of our energy mix. Ethanol is part of our energy mix. And it moves with the big, uh, the big boy on the block, which is oil. I.e., the ethanol producers simply price their product to what the price of oil is doing. Yes. So, as but, long as oil is going up, they're going to make more money, right? Sorry, Candace. But, but I would, I would add to that that ethanol is still lower than gasoline. So you're still seeing the um, ethanol, the oil companies blending ethanol into the market, um, because yes, it has gone up slightly from about 225 a gallon to 260, which was Friday's price. So it's gone up slightly, but it's still cheaper than gasoline. So we're still seeing them blend ethanol in. And ethanol is a necessary component now of yes. blending, because they need the oxygen. They used to get the oxygen through things like MTBV, mm -hmm. but that's no longer allowed. But the ethanol brings in even at E10 
the oxygen that they are required to have in the gasoline to be able to be proper gasoline be sold on the market. Explain that a little bit more, because MTBE was something that the, the refiners used. But it turned out that if it leaked into the groundwater, it was toxic. It was a poison, right? Right, and that's why it lost favor. And then ethanol started coming on in the pitcher, and it looked like a much better solution for bringing oxygen into the gasoline. It was needed. Now, when you say bring oxygen in, what do you mean? It has more oxygen than right. gasoline does? It's a, it's a leaner component blending item that can then naturally provide the oxygen that's needed for us to have the right kind of gasoline on the market. So it's, it really is pretty much mandated by the Environmental Protection Agency right. that you have to put ethanol in gasoline. Right. And it has to have a certain oxygen content. Right. And I forget the exact number, um, but there's a certain oxygen percentage that must be in all gasoline to be legally sold gasoline on a specification in, in all, throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, go ahead. And the other thing about that is is also that the uh, ethanol gives you higher octane that comes along with the the oxygen content, and so you know oil companies have been able to tweak their refinery to put out a. a of gasoline that has lower octane and then they put in the ethanol to bring that up to the specs for the pump. So it actually allows them to make the gasoline component cheaper by allowing more of the, what I'd say, the, the lower octane components to be uh, available in the fuel. So because of that, you know, they like ethanol because it helps them to increase their octane content as well as the oxygen content. Right. Here's one uh, question I have. Uh, the auto industry has been very, or at least uh, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, I should say, have been very pro-E85, that is, gasoline with 85% ethanol in it. But they have been against E15, gasoline with 15% ethanol in it. Uh, I, I don't understand that. It's a contradiction to me. Uh, can I jump in here? Yeah, a bit? please. We're, we're not against any particular level blend of ethanol. Let's make it clear there, first and foremost. E15, in and of itself, is not a bad level of ethanol. What we are concerned about is that if you're going to bring a fuel to market, make sure that it's properly evaluated on the vehicles it's intended to go on. If it was just forward thinking, that's one thing. But when they talked about putting E15, they talked about putting in legacy vehicles all the way back. So Older what, cars older that cars. are not designed for this, is right. what you're saying? So older cars, we had a concern. So our, we were more about let's do the testing and let's get the data, then make the right decision. We think that maybe the not enough data was gathered before the decision was made, and that was the biggest, biggest concern. Uh, do you see it the same way, Candace? And, and the reason I ask is there were studies done by independent laboratories uh, ordered by the Department of Energy, no less, and they found there wasn't any problems going to E15. Right. Well, you know, we have also done studies with the CRC and others that maybe do show that there are some problems. And, you know, there probably aren't problems in some cars. You just don't know which ones there are and which ones aren't. So, you know, General Motors really wants to provide a safe and a, and a pleasurable driving experience for our customers. And so we really encourage our customers to look at the owner's manual, see what that car was built for, and then follow those guidelines. So in the future, when cars are compatible with E15, you can put E15 in there. If the cars aren't compatible, then we don't suggest it. But I want to point out that we have a lot of flex fuel vehicles, like you said, you know, on the road today, 10 million or more in North America, if you count, you know, what Ford and, and uh, Chrysler and GM have put out there. And those cars can use E15. They can use EXX. They can use anything up to E85. So certainly, you know, you can use a higher. We're not against, like Jim said, E15 per se, if the vehicle is designed to accommodate that level of fuel. 
And Professor Dale, where do we stand on E85 then? Because as Candace just noted, there's 10, 10 million flex fuel vehicles, I dare say a, a mere fraction of them actually use E85. You know, a few years ago, four or five years ago, it looked like E85 would be available just about everywhere. It's not today. It, it in fact, has got, seemingly has gone nowhere in that time frame. Well, it, the E85, the vehicles are there, but we don't have enough ethanol. And we probably won't get enough ethanol from corn. I don't think we can get enough ethanol from corn. Uh, so it's it going to require other sources of ethanol, non-food sources, what we call cellulosic ethanol. That's actually, that industry is actually moving along very well. But go into that deeper because, again, right. if you go back four or five years ago, the promise was at this point in time, we'd all be on cellulosic, which is a great thing, as you point out, because you don't need corn to make it. You, you can make it from literally waste. Well, I would say that nobody knowledgeable made that promise. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have uh, something like 130 billion, 140 billion gallons of gasoline we consume in this country, which ethanol is a substitute for. You're not going to chase all of that out of the market. You're not going to substitute all of that uh, in any short time. It's, this is a decades-long project. It's going to take that long. And so I don't think anybody responsible said that we would have flooded with the 85 at, at this point in time. D does this country have the political will to allow those decades to take place? I, 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 seemingly, there's a chorus of voices rising up against ethanol. Well, the, the ethanol's always had a lot of detractors and uh, for, ver for various motivations. Uh, but uh, I guess I would throw the question back to just exactly what do you want to put in your gas tank if it's not ethanol? Uh, if you can't think of some renewable fuel that we can have that can allow us high energy density, the advantages of a liquid portability and so forth, just exactly what do you plan to do? Just keep uh, you know, importing oil forever? So uh, ethanol is a very good fuel. It's the, it's the only liquid renewable fuel we know how to make in large volumes. And uh, we're, we're rolling out now the, the cellulosic ethanol industry, which will be, I think it's going to be a very large industry and, and uh, uh, not with the food concerns that we have with, uh, you know, food versus fuel concerns we have with corn ethanol. Mm -hmm. and, and for the car companies, where do you see it going? Well, and one thing I want to go back to is you talked about, you know, in terms of um, either market acceptance or the more infrastructure, you know, more, more pumps. Uh, you know, RFS has some neat features designed into it in terms of flexibility. And explain, RFS is what? The Renewable Fuel Standard. And that's the thing that says that by 2022, there has to be 36 billion gallons per year of renewables produced by fuel providers. So that's a natural driver for us to start putting more renewables. But, you know, so far, most of our ethanol has been gotten from E10. And E10 is just about getting maxed out right now. And as that gets maxed what do you, out... What do you mean by maxed out? That every pump in the United States, some 95% of them, somewhere in the 90% are now filling the regular gasoline. When you buy regular gasoline, it's got 10% ethanol. So it's almost impossible to buy pure gasoline right. anymore. Then so what then says, if the renewable fuel standard says more and more ethanol needs to be coming on or more renewables, where's it going to come from? More than likely, it's going to have to come from higher concentrations of ethanol. And the, the renewable fuel standard has a thing called RINs, which is a mechanism for tracking the actual uh, sale and um, movement of, of um, ethanol or renewable fuels and to give it some kind of trading uh, component so that people can trade be amongst each other for meeting the requirements. And what the uh, EPA and the government did when they set up this thing called RINs was set up a mechanism that will naturally drive the differential between gasoline and ethanol to a point where it becomes more and more attractive. 
as it becomes more and more attractive to the customer, then that will drive more sales of ethanol. And so there needs time. Time is needed to really enable that mechanism to, to happen. So EPA needs to uh, keep its resolve, like they have, on keeping RFS going. Well, the EPA has shown resolve. It's the one that's pushing for E15, oh, yeah. right? I mean, which would provide a 50% increase in the use of ethanol. Sure. And um, we already talked about E15 and some of its challenges, but that doesn't mean there's other blends that couldn't be looked at. And for that matter, taking our FFVs that are already out there, our flex fuel vehicles, and filling them within any level of ethanol up to um, uh, 85%. Candace, where does the U.S. stand right now in terms of having adopted so much ethanol? Have we really displaced oil that much, which is what the standard was all about in the first place? We have made significant, you know, um, people ask me, is it significant? And I say, of course it's significant. We replaced, you know, 10% of, of what we use here in the United States. Uh, as Jim was pointing out, we use about 132 billion gallons of gasoline every year. And, and now, you know, last year the ethanol industry made 14 billion gallons here in the United States. Uh, about a billion of that they actually exported uh, to other places. So it's it's been very successful, but I think that, you know, going beyond that, one thing that Jim didn't point out is that renewable fuel standard does have a cap on corn ethanol at 15 billion gallons. So of that 36 billion gallons of renewable fuel, only 15 can come from corn. I said we made 14 last year. We're almost at that max, right? I think even with the plants that we have now, you know, we won't see any new ones built. But what we will see are these advanced fuels that, that Bruce was pointing out. So a lot of these advanced fuels take... Um, the waste materials, the corn stalks on the field, not the corn itself. They take, you know, dedicated energy well, crops. Switchgrass. I mean, a few yes. years ago, everyone was talking about switchgrass. Is that ever going to happen or no? Right. And, and I think that we will see those. And, and we're starting to see some of those growing. There are fields of switchgrass in Tennessee right now that are growing to supply a plant. And we are starting to see those plants come online. There's one coming online in Florida um, just this next quarter. Uh, we've got a couple coming online uh, early next year. Even the companies that GM has invested in, Mascoma and Coscata, both have plants on the drawing board. Um, Mascoma's plant is up in the UP here in Michigan, and so we're going to be really excited about of that technology taking wood chips uh, that are left over from the forest industry and making them into a fuel. So the future is very bright and it goes beyond ethanol because a lot of these, uh, and ethanol is a good molecule. I have nothing against, you know, it's got a lot of good properties, but we are also going to see what we call drop-in fuels. And those are fuels that are hydrocarbon-like, that are that mimic gasoline and diesel exactly. So you don't need a flex fuel vehicle. You don't need special pipelines or other things. They're truly, you know, drop-in. You can use them in existing cars. Customers will go to the pump, fill up, and won't. it'll be transparent to them. So we're very excited also about those technologies coming online where you can take waste materials uh, and other energy crops and things and make these fuels for the future. So there's some exciting things on the horizon. Uh, just to add to what Candace said about some of the groups they're working with, we've been working closely with a company called Ziachem out in the Northwest, and they're making good progress to start going commercial themselves this coming year as well. With cellulose. Cellulose ethanol made uh -huh. from trees that they grow and working with a company called Greenwood out there. So there's, we're pretty excited about trying to move the needle with uh, cellulosic ethanol. Bruce, the, the question about cellulosic or cellulosic, however right. you want to pronounce right. it, tomato, tomato, uh, is it going to be cost effective? It, it requires a whole other production step, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it, it requires uh, what we call pretreatment, which is breaking open the plant cell walls to expose them. But so that's an additional cost step. But the material is quite a bit cheaper. You know, maybe sixty dollars a ton for delivered corn stover, wood chips, or so forth. Uh, so that's it. That's its advantage. Uh, but the a lot of progress has been made on the conversion technology. A lot is also being made on the supply chains. So that industry is actually happening. Candace said that the, the Florida firm is going to start up this year. Uh, and then next year, I expect, I expect by the end of 2013, well, something like 100 million gallons a year of annual capacity. And then it will grow from there. As we people learn how to do this, learn how to do it more cheaply, we set up the supply chains, the preferred technologies get established. It, it just takes time to roll out this kind of, uh, kind of thing. So, but it's happening now. Isn't one of the issues, though, that the United States is using less fuel? I mean, and I think it's a combination of the recession. So many people out of work, they're just not driving or driving as far. And more we're buying more fuel-efficient cars. So do we get to a point where we go, uh-oh, uh, we simply don't have enough gallons of gasoline to blend this stuff into? Well, at that point, then the drop-in fuels and other things, uh, you know, take over. You don't have to blend it. You just use it straight. You know, that's, that's not a big deal, I yeah. think. <laughs> Candace, explain a little bit more about these drop-in fuels. I've never heard anything about it before. There's a lot of different technologies that are out there for making what we call drop-in fuels. One of the simple ones is a pyrolysis process, which is just actually taking biomass material, and it's sort of like melting it, but it's, it's without oxygen, and you decompose it back down into a black you know, sludge-looking materials is just like a crude oil, right? And you can actually take that crude oil and you can use it for bunker fuel or for electrical generation, uh, and then you can also take it for upgrading into a transportation fuel. There are other processes by a number of com companies that take sugars, uh, and they use either yeast or bacteria as a microbe, and they do what I call the sugar to hydrocarbons. Uh, so they have microbes that actually will spit out, you know, hydrocarbons, whether that's a C15 chain or whether it's a range of anything from C12 to C16. But, you know, there are a lot of different technologies there. Um, and one of the things we haven't explored is even natural gas. There are some companies that are now looking at, since natural gas is pretty cheap here in the United States, starting with that, making a syngas, which is a hydrogen CO mixture, and then using a microbe to convert that into a fuel, either ethanol or a hydrocarbon-like uh, molecule. So there's a lot of companies out there looking at making things that are direct replacements for, for diesel and gasoline. And, and one of the pulls for that is really the airline industry is, and the military, because um, the airline industry gets taxed, a carbon tax, every time they fly into Europe and fly back out. So they have a big incentive to try to move towards renewables. But you know they need something that's compatible with their existing planes. They aren't going to change the plane. And, and the military is not going to change their you know, steamers and, and Air Force carriers and things like that. So these fuels have to actually look like and perform like, you know, traditional petroleum-based fuels. And that's what we're producing. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Bruce, going back to ethanol for a moment, one of the big questions out in the public is, is this really a net energy gain? Or are we using a whole bunch of petroleum to make ethanol and so we're coming out really maybe on the short end of the stick or not maybe even moving the needle much. So you have to be careful about how you're defining your terms there. In terms of petroleum in to fuel out, corn ethanol is a big winner, about 20 to 1. Okay. In terms of total energy in and, and ethanol energy out, uh, corn ethanol is, is a little bit positive, maybe 20 or 30 percent positive. It's not a huge multiplier. I don't know, 20 to 30 percent sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> it, it, it's a start. Right. Okay. The, we don't have a large-scale cellulosic fuel industry, ethanol industry now, but all the projections of that 
indicate that it'll be on the order of about 10 or, 20, or 15 to 1. In other words, a very large uh, positive net energy uh, for, for cellulosic ethanol. Jim, for the auto industry, where does it go with ethanol? Uh, the United States and Brazil are the only markets that I'm aware of that have got this mandate and really pushed the market. Are there other places in the world that might uh, make sense? Europe is talking more about biofuels. Um, I don't know that they're as advanced as what we are in the United States or for sure not Brazil. But, uh, and I think there are some other markets maybe in the Far East that are a little bit... Uh, There's actually 54 countries around the globe <laughs> that have a mandate of some sort that's on right. biofuels, and, and that's either a volume target or it's, it's a percentage target. Uh, Europe has the Renewable uh, Energy Directive, which is a percentage directive, but, you know, there are 54 countries that have some sort of mandate to move towards biofuels, and there's a lot of reason for that. One is just increase energy demand over time. You know, uh, here in the United States, like you said, we've kind of peaked on the amount of gasoline coming down, both because of the recession and because of fuel efficient cars. But when you look at the world as a whole and energy as a whole, it's going to go up. One of the things I like to say is that China and India have 38 percent of the population, and they use two barrels of oil per person per year. In the United States, we use 15. Europe uses 12, Brazil uses 9. So even if they move from 2 to 3, I mean, they got a refrigerator and plugged it in, you know. I mean, we're, see how much more energy that we're going to need. And so, you know, being able to use renewable energy, things that can be created year after year and not use up, you know, fossil sources is something that every country is really looking at. It's, it's an energy independence issue. It's a greenhouse gas saving issue. It's a jobs issue. It creates jobs. It increases the balance of trade and allows them to have money. So a lot of countries around the world are, are moving towards biofuels. I'd, I'd like to have one specific example. I was in Colombia, South America, just uh, earlier uh, this summer. The uh, national oil company called Ecopetrol of uh, Colombia has established, or is establishing now, two places where they produce an awful lot of ethanol from sugarcane. And it's specifically a rural development uh, activity. This is their more impoverished uh, areas, and, and they're building schools trade centers, technical centers, to train the people who will work there to harvest the cane and so forth, as specifically as an economic development. And they need the fuel, too. But, but that particular area is a very impoverished area of Colombia, and so they want to use it, uh, not coincidentally, as a, as a means of helping remove some of the attraction of the, uh, of the terrorists, of the FARC, the uh, uh, group that they have there. So that's how there are uh, other ways of thinking about uh, how, how biofuels, renewable fuels, might help us overall. Mm -hmm. And Jim, we haven't touched on biodiesel much in this discussion, but that's got to be part of your planning as well. Oh, sure. We've been one of the uh, companies that have been leading the charge for um, things like B20. Right now, a lower level is B5 or 5%. Uh, when uh, back in 07, 08 timeframe, we saw the need to have a higher spec for biodiesel so that we could even put more biodiesel in the market. So we worked hard with in ASTM and one of my predecessors worked very hard with ASTM to get a, a B20 spec approved, really a B6 to B20 spec. So uh, biodiesel is another means by which to get more renewables into the market, and that's a key element also of the renewable fuel standard. Candace, what about uh, overseas? Uh, biodiesel, I know they've been looking at doing that in Europe and have been doing it, but using rapeseed as the, as the feedstock. Right. When we think of biodiesel, we think of oil crops like soybeans here in the United States or rapeseed in, in Europe, or even palm oil, but there's some sustainability issues around the palm oil issue. But there are other crops that we can move to. GM has a large project on Jatropha, which is a 
perennial plant, you know, instead of soybeans having to plant them and harvest them and plant them and harvest them every year, uh, you plant this and it grows for 100 years and you can continue to, to harvest the uh, oilseed fruits that are, are generated by uh, the, the, the plant. But one of the nice things is it grows on marginal land, and I'm talking really marginal land. You know, took a group from DOE to, to see the plantation and they looked around and said, absolutely nothing grows here, right? But the place where the, the plantation was is bright green, you know, and it, it just shows the potential to grow in, in places that are, are very drought or, or very low rainfall or very minimal soil. But the point is, if you, if you have an acre of land and you're growing soybeans, you can get, you know, 50 or 60 gallons of biodiesel off of an acre of land. To Trofa, you can get 500. So, you know, you can see there's, there's a lot of sustainability issues there. So I think we're going to be moving away from... Uh, crops that have to be grown on agricultural lands and try to move to a lot of these crops that can be grown on marginal lands and produce a lot of the, the oils that we need um, that way very sustainably. Bruce, we're down to the very end of the show here, but uh, biofuels have a bright future is what I'm getting out of this discussion here. Yes, they do. Yeah. And it's, it's more than that. Our economy absolutely depends on energy, having enough energy, and particularly liquid liquid fuels. We have to make this transition. If we want to continue to be wealthy, and I think we do, and educated, all the things that come with having uh, you know, enough wealth to go around, we've got to make the transition to renewable fuels. And for liquid fuels, the, what we use for get around mobility, that's really biofuels. I'm going to mention something that was a, a thought that I wanted to make sure. Quick, because we're down to the yeah. end, but go ahead, Jim. Carbon. You know, renewable fuels bring us lower carbon. And carbon is something we've been measured, especially as it relates to CO2 and greenhouse gas. So we need to have things like renewable fuels, and one of the cheapest alternatives for us to put something on the market is ethanol-capable vehicles. And it's a way to get less carbon and less carbon out the tailpipe. So that's important to us. Good. Thanks for jumping in on that point. Very important one. And so I need to thank all of you. Jim Frusty from Chrysler, Bruce Dale from Michigan State University, and Candace Wheeler from General Motors Research and Development. Great having you all on here. I think I learned a whole lot more. I'm sure there's a whole lot more yet to learn. <laughs> right. And I hope all of you have shared in learning all about this ethanol and renewable fuels issue. And please join us again here next week for How to Line This Week.